Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25. Verses 12 through 25. You make your way there. It's page 847 in the Pew Bible. Page 847. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've just sung and the reminder of the wonderful cross. Lord, it's that cross that is so terrible yet so wonderful that has secured our salvation for us. Lord, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life. We have a security. We have an inheritance waiting for us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that we would all be bending the knee now. For one day all will bow. Some will be in worship, but some will be in judgment. Lord, I pray that we would recognize who Christ is as we have the opportunity now. Lord, we love you. We thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25. So please follow along as I read. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is also in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. There is a game, or I could say an activity, uh, that was invented or came about our last few years in youth ministry when we were up in Mason City. And the game is entitled Bean Boozled. Some of you might not have a clue what that is. Some of you might have played that. It is jelly beans uh, in a package. And there are, I don't know, 20 different flavors of jelly beans in this package. But of those 20, there are pairs of two. And they look the same. So there'll be two green ones, two red ones, two blue ones of the same pattern. And you pull one out, and you look at it, and you eat it. And you might, might, might be thinking, that's not that bad of a game. I like jelly beans, right? There's some interesting flavors. 
Well, this game is designed that each color that is matching has a delicious flavor and a very disgusting flavor. And it's amazing how they can get disgusting flavors into jelly beans. Uh, there is, uh, I can't remember exactly all the flavors, but there's like mowed grass. You eat it and it tastes like mowed grass. Uh, there are, uh, are some really nasty ones. There is an earwax one. Uh, I'm not going to, I think there was a liver and onions one. Uh, all these different flavors. And what you do is you, you pull out a jelly bean with somebody else, and it may be the same color, it may not be, and you're sitting there and you have to eat it. It might be green apple or it might be jalapeno. You don't know. And you put it in and you chew it, and you're like, oh, or where's the trash can, right? The point of the game is that the beans look good on the outside. Jelly Belly jelly beans have all kinds of crazy flavors. Some of them are disgusting. Some of them are really good. Two of my favorite are the buttered popcorn and Dr. Pepper. Very weird, I know. Um, but the beans look good like they should taste good. You get something, oh, this is going to be a cherry. It is not cherry. On the outside, it looks like, oh, this is going to be so good and sweet and a fun little treat. But when you actually eat it and get to the inside, it's disgusting. Perhaps you've gone to the supermarket or out to your garden and you've picked up uh, a vegetable or a fruit. This looks like a good one. Then you cut into it and it's terrible. Had that happen, I think, a few weeks ago with an apple. Looked good on the outside, cut into it. It was gross on the inside. It, was, it had turned. The outside looks good, but on the inside, it's disgusting. It's rotten. Maybe it's empty. It's not at all what you thought it was. As we come to our passage this morning, and as the disciples and Jesus are in Jerusalem during his Passion Week here, they're going to make their way to the temple. And along the road, they're going to come across a fig tree. And Jesus approaches this fig tree, and he's looking for fruit, but there is none. Jesus is approaching the temple. The temple on the outside is amazing and beautiful, and it's a place of worship. But on the inside, it's a den of robbers. The outward appearance of these things looks good, but on the inside, what they truly are is hollow and empty. And Jesus is going to demonstrate this and correct this and show where true worship lies. The fig tree is barren. The temple is full of robbers. It is hollow. It is not what it's supposed to be. Even though on the outside they look good, on the inside, they are empty. Jesus, in this passage, condemns those who do not bear spiritual fruit, but who appear as they do. And that's our big idea from this, uh, this section this morning, is that Jesus condemns those who do not bear spiritual fruit, but who appear as they do. So let's look here at verses 12 through 25, the illustration of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then Jesus' following teaching. So, verse 12. We'll start off here with the cursing of the tree and the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is staying in Bethany. We learned that from the previous section. And he had the triumphal entry. 
into Jerusalem. He is welcomed as the king, right? And he accepts this worship in a sense, that he is the coming king. And he surveys the temple in verse 11 and then heads back to his lodging in Bethany. And the next day, they come from Bethany, verse 12, and Jesus was hungry. They were on the road, probably in the morning, and he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Fig trees were very, very common in Israel across the countryside, especially in areas where there are a lot of travelers. People would specifically plant fig trees along the road because during a certain time of year, there'd be lots of figs. You could grab one. They'd be for anybody. Um, it wasn't a grove of fig trees that somebody owned or harvested. They were just along the road. Um, you go looking for asparagus in the ditch, right? The beginning of summer, kind of like that. Uh, these fig trees would have lined different places, and if you found fruit, you could take it, eat it. It was a good little snack. Some of you might have had figs before. They're small, sweet fruit, uh, very common uh, in, the, in the Near East, very much a staple of their diet. So Jesus was hungry, and he saw a fig tree, fig tree far off, and it was in leaf. It was beautiful. It's the idea that it was overflowing with green. Right? You ever look at a plant and say, man, that's a healthy plant, just green and full. And so Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came up to it, he found nothing but leaves. There was no fruit. Now Mark puts in this comment, for it was not the season for figs. So you might be thinking, well, Jesus, it's not the season for figs. Like, I'm not going to walk out to a stalk of corn in, you know, say June and say, where are all the ears at? <laughs> it's still growing. So there's some question here as to what Jesus was doing. In verse 14, he said to it, that is Jesus, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, how could Jesus do this? Some people say that this was an act of anger or vindictiveness by Jesus. Basically, that Jesus was so upset that there was no fruit that he cursed it. Now, does that match, in your mind, the personality and character of Jesus? No, not at all. Jesus is doing something here for a purpose. He never did anything just to do it. He always had a purpose and a reason behind what he was doing. Jesus, being God, cannot do something out of spite, uh, out of anger in an unrighteous way. So Jesus does this for a purpose. And there's some discussion as to why he thought there might be figs on it. This time of year, late spring, on a fig tree, there should be some small fruit appearing. In the fall, late summer, early fall, was the main harvest of figs that we think of. But in late spring, this time frame when Jesus would be in Jerusalem, the fruit would just be, should just be starting to grow. And you can actually pick, they call them early figs, and there was a Hebrew word uh, in my study that I found, and I could not pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try, of what they called them. But they were basically early figs. They weren't quite as sweet, they were smaller, but many people would eat them, and they would pick them early, and then the plant would grow more for the second harvest in the fall. And so this time frame, with the tree having full leaves, 
there should be some early fruit on it. And many commentators believe that this is what Jesus was looking for, that he was looking for this early fruit. And so as he goes, he doesn't find any of it, and so he curses the tree. How does this tie in? Well, we need to look, at course, of the context of what is happening because that helps us understand this, uh, this account. So the disciples heard it. And immediately following this, they go to the temple. And as they come to Jerusalem, it says, they entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he makes his way to the temple, to the temple complex. Now, the temple was large, but it was even surrounded by an even larger complex, about 35 acres worth of grounds, walls, porticos, uh, the different courts. And to refresh your mind for the temple, there was the main temple building where the Holy of Holies was that the, only the priests could enter into. And then outside of that was the court of the priests. And that's where the priests would do their duties of sacrificing things and incense and, and everything that the law required. And outside of that court was the court of men. And that's where a circumcised Jewish man could enter into. And then outside of that was the court of women. Any Jewish woman could enter that court. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles, where anybody and everybody was welcome. And these courts were divided by walls with gates and signs, so people knew where they were allowed to go. So it was a large area with these different courts, but it was designed for worship. People would come to offer sacrifices, yes, but also to pray, to be in their designated court and pray to God. For the temple was supposed to be the location of God's uh, presence, his Shekinah glory. Think of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire from Exodus and when it came upon the tabernacle, his, his glory there, his presence on earth with man. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Um, that's where it was in the temple. So people would come to worship, to pray. It was a very, very important aspect of the nation of Israel. It was, in a sense, its national identity. This was it right here, the temple. And we see today while the battle, why the battle for the Temple Mount is still ongoing. So you have the nation of Israel, and then you have the other um, uh, Arab nations, specifically the Muslims, who both claim that Temple Mount, where the temple was in Jerusalem, and then Muslims claim it as well for the Dome of the Rock, and there's this conflict. But it was so central to the nation of Israel, not only for their worship, but for their national identity. But Jesus comes to the temple. And this is the third temple. This is not Solomon's temple. This is not the temple of Zerubbabel from when they came back from exile. But this is Herod's temple. So Herod the Great, uh, the ruler put there by the Romans, built, basically refurbished the temple. And it was amazing. The architecture, the adornment, it would literally shine when the sun hit it from the white stone, from the gold that was on it. You could see it. it was this amazing 
impressive structure. From the outside, it was beautiful. It had this appearance of, yes, this is a temple that we've come to worship in. But when Jesus arrives, what does he see? He sees the temple courts filled with money changers and with people selling pigeons for sacrifices. And what does he do? He basically expels them. He pushes them. He, he causes them to be cast out of the courts of the temple. Why? It says in verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The fact that money changing was going on was not wrong. The Jews had to pay a temple tax once a year, and there's only certain coins that the temple would receive. And so money changers were necessary. People selling pigeons and other animals for sacrifice was necessary. A lot of people were poor and didn't have all the livestock and all the animals that they needed when they came to Jerusalem. And so it was an appropriate uh, business to sell pigeons, to sell other animals to be sacrificed. You can imagine traveling from a long distance away to come into worship. It's a whole lot easier if you can just buy your pigeons in Jerusalem and not have to bring them with you. <laughs> it's that idea. So it's not the fact that money changing was happening because that was necessary or the sell, selling of animals because that was necessary. But what had happened is that these practices had encroached into the temple. Josephus, who is a historian, recorded how the money changers and the animal sellers were located on the Mount of Olives surrounding the temple, outside the temple, but not in the temple. But here we see as Jesus approaches, as he enters into the temple, he doesn't come to find a place of prayer, as Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 56. That's what Jesus quotes there, Isaiah 56, 7, that his house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. So he's talking about the court of Gentiles. He doesn't find people praying. He finds a small supermarket in the temple courts. The focus of what the temple was to be about was completely misguided. And people were out to make a buck. More than likely, the people who oversaw the temple, who would be the Pharisees and Sanhedrin, the scribes, the people in positions of authority, the religious leaders, they were the ones who stood to make a buck from having the people inside the courts. So rather than finding his temple being one of worship and of prayer, he finds it a place of commerce, of people, in a sense, he says, robbing, a den of robbers. And he says, but you have made it a den of robbers, which is actually a quote from Jeremiah 7, where in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is lamenting what's going to happen, uh, what has happened, what's going to happen to the temple. Here Jesus is seeing how this has come to fulfillment. Jesus casts them out. In the other Gospels, we read of him you know, may, making a whip and literally getting them out. Because you can imagine, one man walks in and he says to this huge marketplace, get out. Yeah, okay, whatever, buddy. But if a crazy man comes in with a whip, 
flipping you, you move pretty quick, right? <laughs> you ever been snapped by a towel? Oh, what was that? <laughs> Jesus making a whip to drive them out. And that's what he does. He physically overturns tables. He drives them out. And it says he doesn't even let anybody walk through with goods. This doesn't mean that, you know, somebody has a bag. Jesus doesn't, you know, it's not TSA security here or anything like that. But it's rather they were carrying things to be sold in the temple. Jesus says, no, get out, get out. Why? Because his temple was to be a place of prayer. But it's become a place of robbers, of commerce. The temple on the outside looks good. It's beautiful. Everything is as it should be, except when you enter, it's not a place of prayer. It's a den of thieves and of robbers. This helps us to understand the fig tree. And the fig tree helps us to understand what's happening in the temple. The fig tree looks good. Full leaves, beautiful. Jesus goes to find fruit. There is none. Jesus approaches the temple. It's beautiful. There it is in all of its glory and splendor. Jesus enters into it, doesn't find any fruit, but instead finds corruption and selfishness and greed. The fig tree is an illustration of what Jesus is doing with the temple. He curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. This unfruitfulness brings about the curse. The unfruitfulness of the tree brings about the curse. The unfruitfulness of the temple demonstrates that it is going to be no longer needed, but rather we're going to worship without the temple. Where Jesus is the one we will worship. Think of that from John 4. Your minds go to John 4. It's the woman at the well, and Jesus has this conversation with her, and he asks her a question. You know, where's your husband? I don't have one. He's like, right, you had however many. And he has this conversation and, and talking with her, and she's a Samaritan, and, and she asks the question, well, some say we worship here, and you worship in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. And what does Jesus say? He says there's coming a day when they won't worship just there or there, but we can worship anywhere, for we will worship in spirit and truth. The idea is that spiritual worship is no longer going to be confined to one location like the temple, but rather we can worship anywhere because we're going to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit because everything that God's going to do through Christ. Jesus and him confronting these people in the temple and cleansing it are showing how the unfruitfulness is there, and in a sense that the temple is going to be done away with. What's going to happen after Jesus is crucified in the temple? The curtain, right? It's torn in two. It gets torn in two. This signifies the fact that, one, the curtain has been torn down, and now we have direct access and entrance to God and his presence through faith in Jesus Christ, but also that the temple is no longer needed for the final sacrifice has been made. Jesus cleanses the temple. One author said this, Jesus' actions in the temple were both a symbolic cleansing and a pronouncement of coming destruction. 
as with his teaching miracles and entering Jerusalem as a king, Jesus is acting with messianic authority. Just as Solomon dedicated the first Jerusalem temple and other kings of Judah restored the purity of its worship, so Jesus casts out the sellers who are impeding worship and restores the temple as a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus restores, cleanses the temple as a house of worship for all nations. Is what he quotes. And I love that because again and again, we see Jesus showing how his mission is much bigger than just the nation of Israel. It's for all nations to come and to worship. It's for the Jew and the Gentile. And we see the response. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes, these were the ones who were gonna make a buck, right? These were the religious leaders that had put on this show that were basically leading the rest of the people astray. They, had, um, they were more accountable and had more consequence because of their position as religious authorities. And they heard what Jesus had done, and they were seeking a way to destroy him in verse 18. Why? For they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. All of a sudden, they're realizing, hey, our power grip over the people is loosening because here is someone who is teaching with authority and the, the people actually listen to him and what he's saying is starting to make sense to the people and, and we are losing our ability to control the masses in a sense. And they feared him. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. The fig tree and the temple are two illustrations and demonstrations of the spiritual unfruitfulness of the day. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are hollow or empty. And Jesus condemns them. He curses them because they look good on the outside, but ultimately, they're hollow and empty. It's what Jesus says about the Pharisees. You whitewash tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And then we see the result here, the lessons from the tree and the temple in verse 20. As they pass by in the morning, so this is Tuesday, most people believe, of Passion Week, and they come along the same path, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And one day, withered away to its roots. To its roots demonstrates that it is, it is gone. It is dead. It's going to bear no more fruit. It's, it's, not, it's completely dead. Not just mostly dead, completely dead. Um, as I was in high school and worked for a guy, and we would help him out on his timber and his acreage, and we'd cut down trees, and he had this stuff it's called cordon. And we would we'd cut down a tree, and you'd have to put that uh, around where you cut because it would seep in then to the, the rest of the tree and into the roots to, to make sure it was dead so it wouldn't spring back up again. Um, down to the roots, kill it. You can pull a thistle, but that doesn't mean you kill the whole thistle plant, right? It'll pop up three feet away. It's, what? But this tree is dead to the roots. It is no more. And Peter, verse 21, remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. So the disciples heard Jesus' comment, and now they're like, Jesus, look what happened. And Jesus does not even talk about the fig tree. It's one of those moments you're like, um, 
Okay, I wasn't talking about that, Jesus, but we'll go with what you're saying. What Jesus does is he turns their mind to faith. He turns their mind to trusting in God and living for him. And what does that look like? So Jesus has confronted those sellers in the temple and the unfruitfulness and hollowness that there is. He's already um, cursed the fig tree for its barrenness, for its lack of fruit, and now we see the result that ultimately it is dead. So what does Jesus then direct their focus to? It's, it's what true fruit looks like. What is one who truly believes in God and trusts in him? What will be manifest in his life? So these things were empty, but what does it look like when somebody isn't empty, that they are truly bearing fruit? And he gives several descriptions here. First things he talks about is faith. He says, have faith in God. This is a simple, simple statement, but it has huge implication. Faith is a word for, for trust, right? Trust in God. Have faith in God. That's a throwaway statement, right? That's on the, the front of a greeting card. But yet it's so important. What Jesus is saying is your trust, your reliance, everything you believe in should be in God. In God. In God. Not men. Not in a building such as a temple. Not in your own devices, but in the Lord. Have faith in him. And when you trust in him, what is the result? Have faith in God. He says, truly or verily, verily. He says, listen to this. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, I would do this with kids, but I'm going to do it with you as well. Does this mean that you can pray mountains into the sea? Yes and no. <laughs> Literally, no. Jesus isn't saying, if you pray hard enough, he'll bring Mount Everest here to Iowa. What Jesus is doing is using a figure of speech. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, to demonstrate the extreme of what God can do. Because if we believe and have faith in God, Jesus says, it will come to pass. He's using the mountain as an illustration of something different, of something in our minds that we would think would be impossible. But Jesus says it's not impossible with God, right? With man it is, but not with God. He's using it as an exaggerated example. Somebody who has faith in God will trust God to do unbelievable things. And he says you will ask does not doubt, James 1 talks about that, not like the double-minded man, unstable in all his way, but acts, asks in faith, trusting him, believing without doubt it will come to pass and it will be done to him, for him. So somebody who trusts in God will believe that God can do the impossible, and he has. He has brought you from death to life. That's the most amazing impossible thing that perhaps God has ever done. Secondly, he says, therefore, in verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Ask for anything. Now, some people take this prayer and they call it a name it and claim it theology. Lord, I pray that you would give me a million dollars before next month. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some 
teachers, some Bible teachers, some TV personalities and podcasts and you name it, who would teach that? Well, you just got to name it and claim it. You believe strong enough, God will do it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, whatever need you have in your life, you can take it to God. There's nothing too small or too big to take to him. And when you ask in faith, he will answer. And we temper our understanding of, of prayer, not from just one passage, right? We don't build a whole uh, theology of prayer just from these verses. We look at the entirety of revealed scripture. And so we know that God answers prayer according to his will, according to what he desires, what he wants, right? And sometimes an answer to God's prayer, uh, prayer is no. What Jesus is saying here is that you need to ask in faith, trust God, have faith in God, bring all your cares to him, and understand that God can do amazing, and he can work in ways that you cannot believe. And our praying is also tempered with forgiving. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is not saying if you don't forgive or, or that God's withholding forgiveness from you until you forgive. That's not what Jesus is saying. We balance this with the understanding that somebody who is born again that is truly following Jesus Christ as his disciple will have an attitude of forgiveness. And that attitude of forgiveness manifests itself or is motivated by the fact that we have been forgiven in Jesus. Ephesians 4, 32. Forgiven people forgive. And as believers, we are to have an attitude of forgiveness. We must be ready and willing to forgive those who come to us asking. And this attitude is a litmus test of our faith in God. If we claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and we're not willing to forgive, then the question is, has God truly forgiven you? Have you received that forgiveness? Or do we hold on to things as if we are God, not him? What Jesus does here in covering these two topics of prayer and forgiveness is contrasting the empty outward appearances of the temple and the tree with the true spiritual fruit of someone who has faith in God. The temple is barren. The tree is barren. But those who have faith in God will bear spiritual fruit, manifest in prayer and forgiveness. These are wonderful fruits of someone who is truly truly worshiping and following after God. The tree and the temple should have been sources of fruit, but they were hollow and dead. And Jesus has come to right that wrong of the temple. He has come to curse those who proclaim righteousness, but who are empty. And we know that as Jesus has come, that we now can worship in spirit and in truth anywhere through the power of the Holy Spirit. So for us today, just two quick points of application. First off, this section is a warning on two fronts. First, beware of those who claim to worship and promote Christ while not bearing fruit. Talk to several uh, individuals about upcoming baptisms, kids who want to be baptized. So I ask them their testimony. I ask them, why do you want to be baptized? What does baptism do? Does baptism save you? No, no, no. Okay. What 
is a fruit that you have seen in your life from your salvation. Then I'll ask mom and dad, have you seen some fruit in your child's life? You know, it's not going to be, yeah, they've learned Greek and have gone to Bible college. You know, they're, they're 10. But it's, they're much more sensitive to when they're confronted about their sin. They enjoy praying with our family and for others. And just these small things of fruits because we need to be careful of those who proclaim to be these great Christians, but yet their lives do not match up. They do not bear fruit, whether it's an individual, a Bible teacher, a parachurch ministry, or a church itself. That those who look good on the outside, what is their fruit? Secondly, we need to inspect our own heart and life for fruit. Is it ripe? Is it beautiful? Is it delicious? Or is it, well, it looks okay, but I'm going to take this one right here. <laughs> what does the fruit look like in our own life? Do we have the fruit of prayer? Do we have the fruit of forgiveness, of being ready and willing to humbly ask for forgiveness and to grant it as well? Are there things that are distracting us or out of place in our life that is turning our trust from God into something else? It's a warning for us that Jesus does condemn those who bear spiritual fruit, but who, who do not bear spiritual fruit, but who appear as they do. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, there'll be a day when many will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. May we inspect our own heart and lives for fruits. May we seek fruit in the lives of those who claim to be believers. And may we understand that all of this is found in the true worship of God through Jesus Christ. That we would be salt and light, that we would bear fruit, not for our own glory, but for our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and for the warning and the challenge from this passage. Lord, from the tree and the temple, may we not be empty. May we not uh, be so concerned with appearances on the outside, but have hearts that are set upon Christ. The fact that he is the true temple, that we can worship him, that he is the one who calls us to faith in you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word, and may we daily inspect our lives for fruit. May we understand we aren't saved by our fruit, but our fruit is a result of our trusting in you. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for